I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello there, you are very welcome to Flop Culture, a podcast all about flops. I am your host, Fanula. I hope you're well. I'm back from Australia and I'm back to chat all things pop culture, flop culture, everything in between. We are on social media. If you want to follow us over there, it's flop culture underscore pod. If you could please leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts or actually wherever you listen to podcasts. But the difference is if you leave it on Apple with your nickname in the review, I'll recommend a little bop or flop to you at the end of next week's episode. Personalised. A little present just for you. And a little present also for you if you join our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash flop culture. You get bonus episodes at least two a month. I'm coming in thick and fast with the December content and I'm planning for that at the minute. Obviously a little bit behind schedule with being away. So if any suggestions of stuff you'd like to hear, let me know. In terms of recent episodes... We just did a Bop Culture episode on Severance with David Hammond, which I really enjoyed. So if you're into that, go listen to that. And as always, you've got your flea bag recaps with the one and only Owen Keane. Housekeeping is finished. Let's get into the news. Beyonce's Renaissance, Renaissance film. It's imminent. It's imminent, girls. It's coming December 1st, but she had a lovely premiere for it this past weekend for Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. In terms of who went, who didn't, girls, but I suppose most notably, you had former and original Destiny's Child members. You had Kelly Rowland, Latoya Luckett, Latavia Robertson, Michelle Williams. I think people were kind of very surprised to see... Latoya and Latavia specifically. If you don't remember who they are, that's fair enough. Maybe you're a person of a certain age. That's fine. Well, I'm not going to give out to your girls, right? But they were actually original members of Destiny's Child, right? So it was 
Beyonce, Miss Kelly Rowland, our fave, Latavia, Latoya. They were replaced by someone who didn't go to the premiere, more on that later, Farah Franklin. Farah was brought in, I think, with Michelle Williams at that time, our Lord and Savior Michelle Williams. And then after a few months, she was like, nah, you know what, I'll take this off, can't be bothered. Um, and she left the group, which ended up them becoming a trio. Terrible English, whatever, you get what I mean. Um, I enjoyed this read on Farah's Wikipedia page. While her musical contribution to the group was minimal, ouch, Franklin's vocals are featured on the group single Independent Women Part 1, which peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart following her departure. You would be second, girls, and I am curious as to why she didn't go to the premiere. You know what I mean? There's a part of me that's like, even if you were really salty about it, it's still Beyonce, you know what I mean? Even just the excuse to get your photo taken, because someone's going to take a photo of you, you know? I don't know. Farah, you are welcome to your right of reply if you want to join us on Flock Culture. It's helloflockculture at gmail.com. I'm very excited to watch in terms of what to expect. We've gotten some insight as to the content because it's different to the Taylor Swift concert film in the sense that it's not just a concert film. You're getting behind the scenes insights. You're getting... Beyonce's pulling the curtain back a little bit. Not too much, but just enough that you're like, your appetite is wetted. You know what I mean? Side note, can we believe that that word isn't spelt like just wet? It's spelt like with a H. Anyway, I digress. This is an English language podcast. Thank the Lord, says you. But we did get some insight into the tour. Most notably, we had the New York Times reviewing the film. And they were talking about... Blue Ivy's involvement in the film. I think it was something that Beyonce actually said herself. Uh, I don't think it's Blue Ivy necessarily speaking on camera about this part. Blue Ivy on the Renaissance tour dances frequently, is part of the choreography, is a dancer alongside her mom. And at the start, girls uh, faced a lot of criticism for the dance moves. A lot, a lot of criticism. And Beyonce found that very hard to deal with because initially... Blue Ivy dancing was supposed to be a temporary one-off thing. Actually wasn't supposed to be kind of on the whole tour with her, right? So she starts the tour and then people online are obviously mean. And Beyonce's like, that's my baby girl. Can we not, please? She's just, we're just up here having a laugh. I'm her mom. She's my daughter. This is class. No, it's class to share this moment. Um, but then the quote is, uh, it thrilled her mother that instead of quitting, she decided to put in the work and train even harder for future stops. Which, I mean, begs the question, girls, did we take the wrong lesson uh, from this? Did Beyonce take the wrong lesson from that as opposed to, I don't know, should the lesson be, people are being mean to me, I should work harder? Or should it be like, maybe just people shouldn't be mean to children, potentially. And I know, look, rich children, famous children. No, you shouldn't actually just be mean to them either, you know? Especially not Beyonce's children. My God, she will strike down on you. She has the power to strike down on you. She won't. But that maybe that's, maybe that's the thing. It's the fear. It's the threat that she could. It's the threat. I, when I saw a couple of people also covering this, uh, sorry, not a couple of people, a couple of publications covering this red carpet as well, I found it very funny. There was one page and I think on their Instagram they had a reel you know put together of everyone that attended the red carpet and it was like Lizzo whoever and whoever and many more attended uh, Beyonce's premiere for Beyonce or Renaissance a film by Beyonce and all the comments were like how dare you and many more 
Queen Kelly Rowland. And you know what? I just want to echo those sentiments. That woman, that woman was out. When I, no one was working harder in the late noughties, early teenies in dance pop. No one was. She is our commander. From here on out, she will be our commander. So don't you dare, how dare anyone and many more Kelly motherfucking Rowland. That's all I'll say on that. Elsewhere, I had no idea this, apparently this was common knowledge, um, but Dumois' novel, Anon Plus, is being made into a TV show by Max, the artist formerly known as Patreon Max. And some pretty big names attached to it. You have Diablo Cody and Ryan O'Connell are now serving as writers, Variety confirmed or seemed to learn this week. So this project was initially announced, I think, or reported in May 2022. Again, as I said, missed all of this. One hour drama series. I haven't read the book, but from what I've gathered from online reviews and reading things that other people have said about the book, it's basically the plot of the entire Instagram account. She's an anonymous Instagram account talking about celebrities and she's trying to keep that under wraps, essentially, right? But why this is a big deal, I suppose, Diablo Cody uh, wrote Juno, critically acclaimed, won the Academy Award for Breast Original Screenplay for it. Uh, did Jennifer's Body, a former flop, Tully, Young Adult, worked on loads of other things, right? I'm less familiar with this Ryan O'Connell lad, but he is a comedian um, and he has writing credit, credits, 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 excuse me, it's CR, not CQ, or CW, anyway, anyway, writing credits on Queer as Folk, the reboot, The Babysitter's Club on Netflix and The Will and Grace revival. So... We'll see. I'm going to watch out of sheer morbid curiosity because, I don't know, I don't know how you're going to make an enticing... Well, sorry, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe it'll translate better actually as a TV show as opposed to a book. But if you've read the book, I'd be really intrigued to know your thoughts about whether it was good. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a bop all along and I didn't realise. Anyway, from potential bops to absolute definitive flops. We're back, girls, and this is a good one. You've heard of difficult second albums, but what about difficult 10th albums? Bob Dylan's self-portrait was loathed by critics and fans at the time of its release, but has since enjoyed a retrospective re-evaluation. Joining me to discuss and to continue that re-evaluation is David Tapley from Tandem Felix. Enjoy. David Tapley, thank you so much for joining me for this season of Flap Culture. How are you doing? Good. Long time, first time. Um, it's great to be here to talk about my favourite flop of all time. And flop indeed, but it is a bit of a a curveball in terms of other topics we've covered yeah. this season. And it's a massive... It's the boomer representation. Yeah, perfect. And yeah. I'm so happy to provide that with you. Uh, it's a bit of a blind spot for me even musically this particular artist so why don't you go ahead and tell everyone listening this flop that you've picked well, what is I, it? I love this by the way Finola because the idea of your first proper concentrated exposure to Bob Dylan being this album is absolutely wild um, <laughs> it could actually literally be any other album and it would make sense but this one particular album which is his 1970 album Self-Portrait, which we will talk about today. Um, a critical flop, a massive critical flop, but not necessarily a financial flop. I think it has sold a million copies 
and I've actually got one of them here with me today. See, it's staring at me it's from the, the Bob Dylan's self-portrait, an original 1970 pressing of of self-portrait here on Columbia Records, and um, yes, um, it's, I like it as a cover. I think it's nice. It's kind of cool. I like. You can see uh, anyone listening right now. You have a couple of seconds to go into Google Images and search for this um, album artwork. You can see the individual brush strokes. Um, it looks absolutely nothing like Bob Dylan. <laughs> Despite it being the album title being self portrait. Who self. does it look like, do you think? I don't know. Um <laughs> like Does it kinda of look like Sid from Toy Story? It does actually look very like Sid from Toy Story if he put like Lipstick on. Lipstick on, yeah. He's got beautiful or he's eating one of those like pick a mix red lipsticks or sort of yeah. um also looks kind of hungover. Maybe I don't know. Dylan wasn't drinking around this period, I don't believe. I think he was going through a sort of a um family man sort of um, renaissance around this time which I'll get into when we sort of talk about the biography leading up to this record but um, yeah so this being your first real deep dive into Dylan is so fun and uh, yeah maybe I'll play a couple of clips that'll sort of bring us from the early 1960s all the way up to this record so Dylan his first album came out in 1962, self-titled record called Bob Dylan, which didn't make a huge um, splash around the folk scene, uh, nowhere near as much as his following record, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, which is um, it was it was a seismic record for him. And um, uh, if we could queue up clip number one, this is the sort of early folky sound of Bob Dylan, where he would sing a lot about, you know, sort of anti-war, anti-Vietnam, social justice causes. And this is where he sort of cut his teeth and uh, his legions of fans in New York and around the world, but mainly sort of the New York folk scene. This is where it sort of all was birthed, this sort of uh, really um, activist, sort of uh, lefty type folk movement. And uh, this song is called A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and i crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard So that song is off his 1963 record, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, uh, 1963, which would make him 22 at the time of recording that. He oh sounds about God. 92. Jesus <laughs> but that Christ. Was, that was the sort of style he went for, sort of world-weary um, man who's seen everything. Has been His life has been taken away from him by the, the powers that be and the warmongers in control of um, the nation at the time. And that was the sort of way he went for the next album also, a record called The Times They Are a-Changing, um, similar sort of uh, 
anti-war sort of sentiment and um, also just him and an acoustic guitar singing in his inimitable voice. And then he decided he wanted to sort of show another side of himself um, with a, a more sort of sing-song folk um, affect to his voice, uh, which resulted in the album Another Side of Bob Dylan. That was in 1964, so he was still only 23. He released two albums in 1964. Following on from this sort of period of, of his career, he had what's known as the um, Electric Trilogy. So when people refer to someone as being uh, as going electric or being like a Judas, this is in reference to Bob Dylan dropping the acoustic guitar and picking up the electric guitar in 1965, most notably at the Newport Folk Festival where he was booed and he was thrown off stage and was basically shunned by the folk movement. Um, so the first of the trilogy is an album known as Bringing It, uh, which is called Bringing It All Back Home uh, in 1965. The second of the trilogy is an album called Highway 61 Revisited, which is probably the high watermark of his career in many people's opinion, definitely his most famous album, uh, which spurred his most famous song, which is track number two here that we have, which is a song called Like a Rolling Stone. Like a wrong sound there. Uh, you may have noticed one of the lyrics in that um, chorus, like a complete unknown. Does that ring any bells to you at all? Perhaps the title of an upcoming James Mangold film starring Timothy Chalamet playing Bob Dylan. Are you aware, oh, of, fuck. Are you aware of this? I, I remember seeing the headlines, but I completely forgot about that. Yeah, okay. So whenever that's out, that's when I'll be back on the podcast. Uh, yes, <laughs> actually. Because that film, it's going to suck. How, yeah, how are you feeling about it? It's it, I, The idea of it is, sounds awful to me, personally. Why? Is it just, is it Timothy or is it... I don't think Timothy can do it, personally. I don't think it's Ouch. the sort of role that I can imagine him doing well. Um... Like he is a small boy to me, and as we've heard in these songs, Dylan around this time has a very sort of world weary, um, beaten down manner. Now maybe they can they can rough him up for it, but uh, he's going to be doing his own singing and stuff, which I'm oh yeah. So yeah, we, we that shall see. Would concern me. Let's see. pick that conversation back up when in a year or two that yes. comes out. Perfect, yeah. brilliant. Um, so following on from Highway 61 he released an album called Blonde on Blonde more of the same electric heavy energetic like it was uh, the the sound was dubbed the thin wild mercury sound by some 
uh, journalists, I think, in the in the 60s, and somehow accurately explains how this these records sort of sound very um, off the cuff and wild, and s- some of it seems improvised, some of it seems like he he's playing it for the first time. But it's 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 uh, uh, a great trilogy of records. Following on from this, Dylan had a supposed motorcycle accident where he fell off his bike in upstate New York and went into hiding for about a year. Released a couple of records, but didn't perform live and wasn't seen um, in public or didn't speak to any press, really. So these albums were called John Wesley Harding, uh, which came out in 1967, and an album called Nashville Skyline. Now, Nashville Skyline is an interesting one for this conversation because it's the first time we're going to hear the sort of um, seeds of self-portrait and the sound on self-portrait come out. So I have a clip here of a song uh, from Nashville Skyline, which I believe is actually Madonna's favourite song, which is a song called Lay Lady Lay. Play Lady Lay there. Um, so you can hear in that particular clip this sort of very lucid, sort of creamy sound to his voice that's seemingly come out of nowhere. Um, sort of almost, I would say, a country croon or a, he's trying to sort of ape maybe Elvis's sound or something. But this is noteworthy because this was shocking to people at the time. Now, this Nashville Skyline album was... Critically acclaimed, um, one of his best-selling years, and Lay Lady Lay was a high-charting single around the time. But this leads us on to 1970, where our album of the day, Self-Portrait, comes out. And we've got an interesting mishmash of a lot of things. Um, before we get into the album, I'd like to get your sort of impressions on Firstly, what I think what you've heard in these sort of clips, would it, do those songs ring bells to you? Have you heard? Like the, Rolling Stone does, as yeah. I imagine it would for anyone who knows the name Bob Dylan but hasn't interrogated yeah. the discography at all. Um, and obviously, I know the vocals there, but it's mm. to kind of watch or chart that change as you have with the clips into the weird country thing. Because to be honest, obviously I listened to Self Portrait and... I liked it, spoiler yeah. alert, we'll get into it a bit more when we're kind of interrogating the album or whatever, but I didn't really pick up on the fact that he was doing a thing with his voice yes. or the vocal changes so much. Again, that's because I don't, haven't followed yeah. the career intimately, yes. didn't really know him. I didn't really find it particularly jarring. egregious or whatever, yeah, yeah. yeah or jarring. Yeah. And then you read the reviews, which we will also get into later, <laughs> and it's like, you'd swear the man had killed someone. Yes. Like it was, like it's, it's hilarious to read how it was written about like it was and again, but again this is me looking from the outside in it's yeah. just people really depended on him I think especially around this time he was uh, I, I'm, I'm often known to say that I feel like Kanye West is kind of the closest modern analogue okay. to Bob Dylan in that when he does something different or changes his style people are either shocked 
or amazed for good or for worse. Um, so his self-portrait is 808s and heartbreak. I don't know. I, I'm I'm working on the the links between the album now. Like Dylan has probably thirty more albums than Kanye West does, so I don't know if there's a one to one. Um, 808s and heartbreaks is is a good record, right? Uh, I think so, but I feel like at the time people were very cross about it because of the auto tune and. Gotcha. Maybe that's his Nashville skyline. Then I'm not sure. We'll 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 come to that. There's another podcast in that for sure. Yeah. But um, also, I forgot to say that this country croon voice is sometimes often known as the Kermit the Frog sound. Oh my God, now that you said out loud. <laughs> now that you yes, say it out for loud. But we love Kermit. It's we a do pro love Kermit, Kermit yeah. Pod, we right? do, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, just need to make sure. Need to do a vibe check of the room. <laughs> is pro this, Kerm? Pro is Kerm? this room full of yeah. Kermitators? Kerm dogs or, um, yeah. Can I Kerm just Brock? ask, though, in terms of like, just to illustrate it for people who again have no idea and they're coming to this totally yes. blind and open and willing to learn like we've talked about how the music has changed but in terms of the success for him as an artist what what is the context there he, he, at this time is he kind of coming out of a bit of like imperial phase or was you know what I mean like was it just he was riding the crest of a wave after this Nashville Skyline record yeah. people really did appreciate the change while he, they, I think there was enough time had passed that the the general fan base had come to terms with the fact that he wasn't a spokesman for the generation for the anti-Vietnam movement and this sort of stuff. And it was also the '60s had finished, or was at least coming to the end of the '60s, and, and when when Nashville Skyline came out, so people's attitudes towards pop music and and art and stuff had changed. They didn't need him to be this challenging. Um, political sort of commentator. He was, you know, the Beatles were starting to get into experimentation or had been experimenting with, with sounds and, and, and sort of weird surrealist lyrics and, and, and all of pop music was starting to go in that direction. I think it, it, was a, it was a sort of a perfect crest of a wave that he was riding around this time that he had the attention. So the, the poster, which I actually would love to see if I could find on eBay, there is a poster that was put up around the place before this record came out and the caption was this is a self-portrait this will be in a million homes this time next week or something to that effect and then you know in this in the fine print the new record by Bob Dylan Columbia Records so people were hyped I think there was there was anticipation for this he, he had played a concert his first concert in three years just before starting to record the record um which was uh at the same time that Woodstock was happening, Dylan, who lived in Woodstock, left the country and went and performed in Isle of Wight at the Isle of Wight Pop Festival to 300,000 people. And Absolutely insane. He comes out on stage with his band. His band were called The Band. Um, and uh, wearing all white, like Christ, after three days, you know, from crucifixion. And... He comes out with the Kermit the Frog sound, with all these kind of country songs and doing lots of covers. And people were not particularly positive about that concert. So I think that's maybe where the tide had began to change with him. And people had started to notice that he was he was speaking in a, in a southern accent and he was he had quit smoking. So his voice, he, he claimed he quit smoking, so his voice changed. And he was doing all these love songs and he did some, he did like a, he did Wild Mountain Time in the Irish tune. He did that in front of 300,000 people. 
And um, we'll actually hear some cuts from that concert included on the record for some reason. Um, Bizarre. We'll, like, we'll get into when I that. got to that, I was like, what's going on here? Yes, what yeah. is this record? Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, it's good that you used that specific term there, what is this record? Because one of the famous reviews by a... <laughs> uh, did, did you come across this one? Yes, I bet yeah, say? yeah. It's Grail Marcus, who was the, sort of the first person anyone would go to when they were going to read a Bob Dylan review. The first four words of his Rolling Stone review in 1970 is, what is this shit? And that kind of sums up really the the critical response to this record. Yeah, people. so like what happens? He releases it and people are just agog in yeah. the worst way. I, like there were some reviewers were complimentary about some things like Robert Kreisgau yeah. wrote for somewhere said conceptually this is a brilliant album which is organised I think by Two Central Ideas uh, mm. but then goes on and says the singing is not consistently good though it has its moments and the production for which I blame Bob Johnston yeah. though Dylan has to be listed as a co-conspirator ranges from indifferent to awful uh, it's possible to use strings and soprano choruses as well, but Johnson has never demonstrated the knack. Other points, it's overpriced. The cover art is lousy. No, uh, and I have the no. Rolling Stone Chris review Gow, as well. Like it's... Chris Gow, take my wife's name out of your motherfucking mouth. <laughs> this beautiful... Everyone flip back over to your Google Images tab. This beautiful piece of artwork. Are you saying this is lousy? Sid from Toy Story? 40 years? I've seen worst <laughs> album covers. Yeah, yeah, me too. For sure. Um, I think before we get into the more of the sort of critical minutiae, I would like to go through the record uh, if people would like a sort of live reading. Absolutely. And I would also be curious because you're clearly <laughs> very into Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. you're a big fan. Yeah. Like what, when was your first encounter with the record? And I suppose how does that compare to now even us talking about it now. I would have listened to pretty much every one of those records I mentioned leading up to 1970 and then would have skipped ahead to 1974. And I think a lot of people would do the same. Why did you do that? I don't know. Okay. It was just the maybe the availability of these CDs at the time. People didn't really talk about self-portrait. Now, by the, when I was getting into Dylan, I was, whatever, 18 and uh, uh, quick maths here, it was whatever... 38 years after this record had come out. So, um, is that right? Yeah, maybe. Um, this is not a maths podcast. So, I'm not, I'm no, not doing sorry. fucking long division for you, Tucker, sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, nonetheless, it was just, yeah, just an album that was never really in my consciousness. Yeah. And only really came around to it in sort of the Spotify era, or at least the getting MP3s by whatever means necessary. Um and I think I had liked that Kermit the Frog sound enough that it wasn't too jarring to me. And I think I didn't know any of the critical reception of it. So I got to go in with this sort of blind um, reading of it or mm. blind sort of, I, I was, I was, uh, I hadn't been manipulated in any way. But um, I do want to sort of talk about what the people in 1970 would have heard. So after hearing the previous eight years. Eight years of Bob Dylan is what we jumped through in those three clips. And yeah. he has like taken over the world, changed the sound two or three times. And in 1970, on the 8th of June, I believe, people bought Self-Portrait, the new record by the spokesperson of a generation, Bob Dylan, and they were greeted by this song, All the Tired Horses. Tired horses in the sun 
Wonderful introduction to a record that's going to go somewhere, but keeping your mind in 1970 here, this is an album where Dylan is claiming that it's a, it's a self-portrait, yet this is a traditional American song sung by three women with a string section and maybe some acoustic guitar there that he may or may not have played. I actually don't think he even did. That's interesting. What I... I, I want to keep casting our minds back to this the title of this record which seemingly was a sort of a cast off he ma- he painted a self-portrait for the album art. so he was like yeah. I'll call it self-portrait because that's what it is so the first song has almost none of him on it perfect brilliant so we move through to the second song which is called Alberta Number no. 1 I don't have a clip of this but um, because if I had clips of every single song we'd be here for hours but uh, go ahead and listen to it in, in your own time. So we hear Dylan for the first time on this record singing. Um, in his old voice, though, we've gone pre-Kermit here. And um, he's also singing a traditional song again. And again, what is this? Is this part of his self-identity now that he is re- you know, regressing from his original content or whatever you want to call it? And allowing the Amer- Great American Songbook to speak for him. Who knows? We move on. I Forgot More Than You'll Ever Know, track three. Okay, so this is a cover song, a modern song from relatively modern, 1953, and he's now singing in the Kermit voice. So we're going back and forth here between old Dylan, new Dylan, but still all of this is cover material, traditional material. Track four, Days of 49. He's got back to the old voice again, and it's another traditional song. It is a banger, yeah. Banger. Days of 49, in the days of old. Early Morning Rain, track five, another cover from 1966. So that was only three years beforehand. I tried to find a good analogy of it. So that would be like if I released an album now and did a cover of uh, Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. <laughs> Do it. In my, in Kermit, in, in the Kermit the Frog in voice. the style of Kermit the Frog. Yeah, okay. Might have to, might have to send you a clip uh, later on there to drop in. Um. Yes, we'll see if that happens. Okay, track six, In Search of Little Sadie. So this this is where things get weird. I do have to point out that at, at nowhere in any promotional material was this pegged as a covers album, but we have absolutely no original material at this point. And Dylan jumping between voices, jumping between styles. So this is track six, another cover song about a man who shoots his wife and goes to prison. Keep in mind, this album's called Self-Portrait. <laughs> In in the song, he also claims to only get 41 days in prison. What the fuck? <laughs> um, the justice system for you, am I right? Yes, yeah. And somehow, not only has he not written this song, he somehow is able to manage making it sound like he is making it up as he goes along. So here's the clip. 
Standing on the corner and just ringing my bell Up stepped the sheriff from Thomasville He says, young man, is your name Brown? Remember, you blow little Sadie down Oh, yes, sir, my name is Lee I murdered little Sadie in first degree First degree and second degree If you got any papers, will you serve them to me? Well, they took me downtown and they dressed me in black. They put me on. That is In Search of Little Sadie. Thank God that one is over and we'll never have to hear from that again. So, following on from this, we have uh, an, an Everly Brothers cover called Let It Be Me. Beautiful song. It's at this point, I kind of think of that comment about how there's sort of two ideas that this record is based around. Maybe the smart thing would have been to have done a sort of Nashville skyline part two with this sort of beautiful country material and leave the other strange experimentation for a different record. But nonetheless, we move on. Track eight, Little Sadie again. (laughs) In the new voice. He sings in the new voice this time. So Kermit has been left behind. Okay, track nine. Thank God we have finally got our first Bob Dylan original, which is called Woogie Boogie. Woogie Boogie, everyone. And it's entirely instrumental. Perfect. <laughs> yes, yeah. moving Brilliant. on from that. Belle Isle, a traditional Irish song. Koi Big, come on you, Bob Dylan's in green. <laughs> oh, uh, Koi Big. He also completely messes up the first chorus um, where he says, Blooming Bright Star of Bright Isle, not Belle Isle. Doesn't do second takes, Dylan. Okay, track 11, Live in the Blues, finally another original composition. Two original compositions in the first 11 tracks that we are cooking. Now we get on to track 12. Dylan has finally found his groove in the studio and we move on to track 12, which is Like a Rolling Stone, live at the Isle of Wight Festival. This is in front of 300,000 people, guys. So this, I have a clip of this here. And um, yes, what purpose does this have being on the record? You tell me. Insane. Yeah, spokesperson of a generation there. When, when, when you had when you told me you were like, I'm gonna do this record, and I was like, okay, grand. And then when I went to listen to it, I thought you'd sent me the wrong thing or something. Yeah. I, I was like, why, why is this here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I was. It's it's do, like I'm dumbfounded. It's like a shoddily put together bootleg or yeah. something with like, oh, I need to. I've got 52 minutes on this CD to burn, so I may as well... Oh, here's a live like version a mix, of Rolling Yeah, stuff. like yeah. a literal mix CD. Yes, yeah, yes. Strange. Dylan, anyway. Dylan the original um, uh, Rob Gordon from High Fidelity here. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we move on from that with an actual great palate cleanser, a song called Copper Kettle, a song about making whiskey. And uh, yes, nicely um, washes the taste of that like a Rolling Stone version uh, out of our mouths. Then we move on to a song called Gotta Travel On, cover, does it in the new voice. Then we move on to one of the weirder two-song runs, I think, in any album I've so ever heard strange. in my life. Track 15, Dylan Man City fan confirmed, Blue Moon. Blue Moon, you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own Love it, even if it is. There's like, there is a great album in here. Unfortunately, there's just too much weirdness in between the records. Yeah. There's a, sorry, there's a great country album in here. Yeah. That, um, yeah, should exist on its own. But nonetheless, we've gotten this sort of mishmash. And speaking of mishmash, we go into another cover. This is the second song of this odd double that we have here, which is a cover of Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Boxer, which it was only came out like that year. Now Dylan does this song. In the old Kerm- in the old voice and the Kermit voice in duet. Check this out. More than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railroad station running scared. Laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. Lila lie, Lila lie. I want to take a brick to the head of Kermit Bob Dylan. I'm in that song in <laughs> particularly. Because when I obviously, again, I listened to it, I was like, Jesus Christ, we, there needs to be some kind of ban on covering this song, whatever. And yeah. then you hear it again with the context of the voice and the changing. That's hard, man. Yes. That's, <sighs> well, I think one of the interesting things about this record, I didn't really go into the recording of it much. Um, but since we're 16 songs in, we've only eight to go, guys, don't worry. A perfect a perfect time to do so, I think. Um, Dylan was not present for any of the overdub sessions that were done. He recorded uh, for three days in New York in um, a studio. He met this guy named David Bromberg, who's the guy who's kind of playing all those acoustic guitar licks. Apparently he met him at a party, said six words to him, and then two weeks later he got a phone call. And he was like, do you want to come check out his studio with me? I want to test this studio to see if it's got a good sound. And Bromberg was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Checking out the studio then turned into basically just making self-portraits. <laughs> the studio they went to was the Columbia Studios where Dylan had been hundreds of times beforehand. So I don't know if it's a lie or he forgot that he had been there or what trip he was on. But basically, they just messed around for three days and this is where this comes from. So any extra parts you hear that isn't just voice and acoustic guitar was done in Nashville without Bob Dylan, except for that duet vocal that he felt the only time he wanted to do an overdub was to just do a second vocal take of the boxer in the non-Kermit voice or whichever one came second, I'm not sure, but... It sounds like the voice is in my head. Yes, yeah. Never in in sync, never the twin. the bad ones, not the good ones. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay, we, <laughs> we should move on. Track 17, we're almost there, guys. Perfect. This is a song called The Mighty Quinn, brackets Quinn the Eskimo, which was a song he wrote and was covered by a band called Manfred Man. I think it was number one in the UK. Um, this is a cut from the Isle of Wight uh, concert. Again, 300,000 people there. Uh, it's an absolute tune, but uh, yeah, I'd check that one out. Take Me As I Am or Let Me Go, new voice, country song. Again, wishing for this Nashville skyline too, if he just had had the effort to do it. Uh, and track 19, Take a Message to Mary. So this, I just wanted to highlight one of the strong points on the record when he does get into this country mode. This is really focused. The whole band comes together, sounds amazing. And for these few glimmers that you do get, a, a real glimpse on what Bob Dylan is capable of doing when he really wants to. Message to Mary But don't tell her all you know My heart is aching for Mary God knows I miss her so Just tell her that I went to Timbuktu Tell her that I'm searching for gold You can say she'd better find someone new yeah, so we can see the sort of heart of the record in, in these songs. It Hurts Me Too, the next track, similar, See Above. This is just another beautiful country song where it seems like he's trying. The next track is another drunk Isle of Wight <laughs> song called Minstrel Boy. Did I mention there's 300,000 people at this concert? The next song is... Uh, the first song from the set at the Isle of Wight, uh, which is a, an old Dylan song called She Belongs to Me. Again, 300,000 people were at this concert. 300,000, including the Beatles. Is All that the, the entire, like... Population of the Isle of Wight, plus that, most of Manchester. Well, I was going to... I was going to... What's the capacity of Electric Picnic now? The capacity of Electric Picnic is like less than 100,000, isn't oh, it? Oh, never mind then. Yeah. So it's four times That's the size. That's insane. Massive, yeah. That's insane. Ridiculous. I think, like... For a long time, that was the largest attended concert for like 10 years. And then I think there was another big folk festival. Out some, I don't know why the folk music seems to bring people in the droves. Anyway, um, was no burning, man. We should move on from that. So track 23, the penultimate song. This is the song as the credits roll down of the record. The third original composition from Bob Dylan on this record, which is called Wigwam. So let's see what Bob Dylan has to say in this song, Wigwam. So yeah, la-da-da-da, that's what Dylan has to say about that one. And then we finally close with what I think of as being like some sort of Guardians of the Galaxy, like post-credits sort of moment. He does Alberta again. The second track on the record, he does again as the 24th track on the record. 23 songs earlier, he realizes, hold on, I got one more thing to say about Alberta. And he says it. And that's it. That's all four sides of the two LP double album from Bob Dylan, Self-Portrait. And I can't believe that that is the first album you've spent time with of Bob Dylan. The other ones are really good. Okay. I do have to say. I'll trust you on I that. I think this is an amazing record. I think to be a Bob Dylan fan proper, to be able to appreciate his entire career, you have to really find failure interesting. 
and I find when Bob Dylan fails, I still find it so interesting. Mm. There are so many points in his career where he does, he he tries to swing for a home run and just completely misses and you get things like this. And he'll try to explain why they happened. Um, and it's it's kind of hard to believe anything he ever says. Mm. He's, he's a strange, he's a strange orator, he's a strange person in interviews, but all that matters is he tried something here and it's fascinating. I think it has a good like five track run at mm-hmm. the start. Like I'm all in until early morning rain and then I'm pretty much off the wagon. Yeah. Until Copper Kettle, Blue Moon, yeah. And then I'm gone again until probably Wigwam. <laughs> you know what I mean? And now yeah. I will say the thing, even beyond, oh, this is a strange album anyway, but like I find, how do you feel about live tracks on albums in general? Because I, maybe this is controversial. Adam's shaking his head, so I don't know if that, yeah. Adam's doing a thumbs down. I think albums rarely warrant it and it would need to be a very interesting take or cover or something and like beloved by a fan base or whatever. One that stands out to me is, (laughs) people are going to laugh, Kelly Clarkson did a... a rendi- like in a, a piano acoustic version of Beautiful Disaster that was on her first album I think but she did it on Breakaway and it's I'd never heard the song before and it's very very good that's real self-portrait like, vibes I yeah. love that <laughs> Perfect. Boss baby vibes yeah. off this one. I'm like, thumbs up, perfect. The minute I see like live somewhere else, and especially of this era, I'm j- because it's obviously harder to let your, you know, isolate the vocals and yeah, shit like yeah, that gotcha. you're hearing all the other sh- I'm just like, no, I wasn't there. I hope everyone had a great time or whatever. Like I wasn't there. You're never going to capture it the same way. Yeah. No. What do you think in general I think about live tracks on there's records? There's few people who can do it well. Neil Young is a person who will do like an entire album of new material live and will just like suck at the sound of the crowd. So you, can, you can't, it sounds like it's recorded yeah. in the studio. You don't hear the claps at the end except for one, once or twice when it's kind of impossible to avoid it. But um, I kind of don't even think you can scrutinize this record in the same way that you would scrutinize other ones because it is... I have a great quote here from Dylan about this wanting to get away from the, um, as I would say, chairman of the board, what you call it, the spokesperson of a generation sort of sound. Well, yeah, so, well, I was going to ask you that because he's kind of doubled down about this record constantly and said he kind of did it as a joke and was kind of... Because it, as we've already illustrated at this point, he's like one of his peaks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the most, like the most potentially famous he'll ever be. Like height of success, whatever. Yes. And he was did this. I'm paraphrasing here, but like essentially to be less famous, and so that people would fuck off and get away from his house. Absolutely. Do you believe? Do you believe that that's true? I have no idea. Okay. I, I, like he 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 is still, he's kind of backed away from that. Then so that this is I think the interview you're referring to with Kurt Loder in Rolling Stone where yeah. he says. He was asked about why did he make it a double album, and he says, "Well, it wouldn't have held, it wouldn't have held up as a single album. Then it would have been really bad, you know. I mean, if you're going to put a lot of crap on it, you might as well load it up, like it's uh, loaded nachos or something like that." Um, so, see, I hear a quote like that, and I'm like, "He's this is tongue in cheek. Like it's he was having fun. He just put this out, and I think I personally." I think it actually is a great self-portrait of what Dylan is, which is, a, a and, and we're all a product of the things we hear and consume, be it 
um, food or like art or whatever. Like he is saying that the person he is has been influenced by people like Simon and Garfunkel or the Everly Brothers or Elvis or these traditional Alan Lamack songs or whatever. He's not going and saying like, this is my self-portrait and releasing an extremely personal um, tell-all sort of revealing record because that is maybe a snapshot of him in a place and time. And there are records like that. There are very, very honest, um, scathingly so honest Dylan records from the kind of following years from this. But but this one, I think he's, there's there's something kind of humbling in, in saying that the self-portrait that he is is the stuff that he is inspired by. Uh, and he kind of wants to be part of that rather than saying that he can go one step further or something like that. I'm not really sure, but um, it's it's interesting nonetheless to have an album that's so devoid of self be called self-portrait. Um, and Bob Dylan is nothing if not interesting. It's the point that I kind of lean on when it comes to these sort of moments. There's, there's plenty of... He has a weird 80s period. He's got some mental stuff he's doing at the moment, like with the single off his album that was only released a couple of years ago. It's like a 17-minute long song with the JFK assassination. So you hear that and you're like, okay, this is this can't possibly suck. This is either going to be interesting or amazing. Unfortunately, it's actually very good. But uh, yeah, I guess maybe people weren't ready for that at the time. They were, they, he, he was too important to be allowed to do this sort of stuff, I think, in the way that, I don't know, again, I kind of come back to my Kanye West thing and, and think that I think people don't like when he doesn't take it all very seriously and I think maybe undermine the like, Christian music that he releases because they just want him to sing songs about his personal life and and talk about Kim and all and all this sort of stuff. Um, but and everyone's allowed to do whatever they want when it comes to making music. And the more interesting, the better. He could just have done the same folky bullshit, anti-war, anti-Vietnam stuff his entire life, and that would have gotten old really quickly. Because mm. people's opinions change on these things. And through the eighties, no one was really no one cared about war. They just cared about money, and that was the height of yuppieism and all this sort of stuff and Dylan goes off on a very anti that sort of he has his own religious period where he converts to Catholicism and starts um, preaching to people on the state or not Catholicism uh, Christianity and starts preaching to people from the crowd and all this sort of stuff again another period that people are afraid to touch with a barge pole mm. but it's just so fascinating it is, the crazy. more we talk about it the more I, it is just so fascinating because again I think well, actually, I'm just going to speak for myself as someone mm. who, again, doesn't really know Bob Dylan, hasn't really listened, yeah. has this idea of him being like this, because he generally is like this revered artist. Yeah. And my opinion of him would be that he takes his craft extremely seriously. Yeah. Is that true? And I suppose, well, I suppose, again, so then to see and hear a record like this, this kind of hodgepodge, <laughs> like, trying new things and experimenting which is really cool but then a lot of it is an original material some mm. of it is live for some reason there's no real cohesion yes I can understand why fans and probably even non-fans alike look from the outside looking in looking at someone like Bob, as an art art a capital A artist yes, yeah. someone who takes their craft seriously and puts out works that are generally beloved and like building on new ideas and trying 
new things. I can understand the reaction being like... Oh, totally. What am I, what am I trying yeah. to say here? You know what I mean? Like, the people are thinking, like, why are you doing something like this and kind of maybe insulting us as an audience and making art that's like this, that I, that I the listener, don't consider art because mm. it's weird and different and you're experimenting and you're trying and maybe yeah. may we're listening to, like, a first draft of something as opposed to a finished thing. Yes, But, yeah. like, is that not the antithesis of what art is well in, in, I will, do you get what I'm saying I do indeed I do indeed I, I will you've you've touched on something that I think is 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 uh, uh, elaborated on the, in, in that famous Grail Marcus what is this shit review he says imagine a kid in his teens responding to self-portrait his older brothers and sisters have been living by Dylan for years they come home with the album and he simply cannot figure out what it's all about. To him, self-portrait sounds like the stuff his parents listen to more so than what he wants to hear. In fact, his parents have gone out and just bought self-portrait and given it to him for his birthday. He considers giving it back for Father's Day. So I think that's another aspect of it was that in, you know, rock and roll was like less than 10 years old at this point and the division between what teenagers listen to and what their parents listen to was never further apart than it was in, in the in the mid to late 1960s. And for Dylan to do a record that is actually very at home on like adult radio. And it's not like this is my parents won't understand this. This is this is really, you know, left wing, anti-Vietnam war, you know, anti, you know, white picket fence. This is music for the streets and the important the important stuff is being said in this. He's not saying anything important in this record. And you is can, he saying anything? That's that's exactly why he has to do this. I think this mm. is this is like a cleansing ritual or something. He, I, again, I uh, like I say, I don't believe anything he says. I don't, I also don't even really believe that any of the stuff in his early career when he was being vocal about war. I don't know if he believed that himself. I think he was just shrewd and was able to say like, okay, there's a big scene of folky people here. All the artists who are getting signed are folk artists and are writing radical leftist material or whatever. He's like, I'm just going to do that, but I'm going to do, do it better and just say yes to everything. And he just in like two years became one of the biggest artists on the planet. And I think he couldn't handle it after a while because the people who legitimately do that because it's who they are, I think will remain true to that. I think he might have just been chasing some sort of trend. It's it's not music that I actually come back to often, the very, very early stuff, because it's all very serious. And yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm not into that stuff so much because of that. But I come back to this record all the time because it's so weird and fun and interesting. And I can't say there's a huge amount of times that I play it from start to finish. I certainly have alternative playlists of of just the country material and the Kermit sounding material just on its own for a nice sort of a nice sort of yeehaw jaunt, but uh, it's um, it's anything but cohesive. And I think that's just, all of those things, people just weren't ready for at the time. Now, I don't know how much people have looked back on and changed their opinion. I know Grail Marcus himself has reappraised it. He wrote the liner notes for it. Um, listeners can't see this, but I also have the 2013 reissue uh, of this record called Another Self-Portrait, which contains, as I was mentioning to the guys here, uh, off mic, 
um, Dylan did another self-portrait of himself. But instead of looking like Sid from Toy Story, he actually looks like Mick McCarthy. He looks like Mick McCarthy, but if he was also the angry emotion and inside out, he's, yes. he's bright fucking red, like, <laughs> for some reason. Who's your, your man in Star Wars, the first one? Darth, Darth Maul, Maul, yeah. Mick got... McCarthy, Darth Maul, have sex, that's what comes out. So, I, Grail Marcus, I think, has done a, like, reappraisal of the record, and he certainly... He certainly knows what this shit is now. He's not wondering what is this shit anymore. And maybe it's just because he realizes that there's space in the world for a record that doesn't say anything that is just... Or maybe the thing that it is saying is more interesting because it's actually a bit Dylan saying, this is who I am, just a composite of this music that All I love. All these things. Yeah. Uh, it was named the third worst rock album ever in a 1991 <laughs> book, the worst rock and roll records of all time. And I assume you don't agree with that. So I would like an argument for what is the third worst rock album of all time in the year of our Lord 2023. I do know what the first two are in that book because I have read it. Um, I know that the second worst album of all time is a Lou Reed record called uh, Metal Machine Music, which is just a weird um, sort of ambient experiment. Which again, like, I don't know how you can say that that's objectively bad because it's it achieves everything that it's trying to do. Like, I think this is, this is what's successful with self-portrait. I think whatever Dylan was trying to achieve, I think he achieved it pretty well. There's no way an album that looks like this could be any different or mm. better. Um, but the worst album of all time in that list is um, an Elvis record called something like Have Fun With Elvis On Stage and it's entirely just stage banter. <laughs> having fun with, with having fun with Elvis on stage is correct. <laughs> but I just meant even in your opinion. I don't know. Um, I, I have certain bands that I think are overrated. Like I wouldn't be much of Go a... Go on. I wouldn't be much of a Rolling Stones guy. I wouldn't be much of... I actually don't really like Simon Agar Funkel, but I can't say that any of these records are um, objectively the worst because they all achieve what they are trying to do. Just the thing isn't for me. Um, I don't know. It would have to be something that's like fake and manufactured or or um, is is really pretentious or something like that. I don't know. All rock records are good. Except for... No, I'm not <laughs> This has been a journey. I feel like I'm going to revisit this record more than I thought that's so funny. when I initially. That is so funny listened. that that's but your I first thought, and not I really need to go and investigate the rest. Well, of Well, I do. I'm going to do that as well. But I just feel like even this listen on Adams and I speakers in a room full of other people. It's just, it's there's more to it than I thought. You know what I mean? Like it's. I will say one thing about this record, and there are a few Dylan records in his catalogue. This is an album that if you have people over for dinner and you want to put on some music and put it at three, as in th three volume out of ten, it will just never really rise above three and no one will ever turn around and be like, what the fuck is this? You only really... I don't know, the boxer cover. Just it, But it just, it moves along at such a nice slow clip and never really jumps out all that much. There's so much space in the world for albums like that that you just stick on and go about your day, have your dinner or whatever. Now, there are other albums that I would not recommend to do that, and they're actually rec records that are probably better than this one, but that demand your attention, yeah. and you have to pay attention to the lyrics and the complexities and stuff. But there's space in the world for um, a lovely backdrop of a record while people are sitting around eating a Sunday roast and having a glass of red wine or what have you. 
Um, but yes, I can't wait to for you to get um, even more self-portrait pills than you already are. Do you have a score for this? I think Grail Marcus in his original Rolling Stone uh, article gave it one out of five. I would find this very hard to score if I... Because like... I really do have a lot of time for that first sight. Yeah. And I, but I don't think there's any point, like, in my brain, I just don't include the live tracks on this. Okay. Maybe like five. Out of ten. Yeah. That's fair. But again, with subject to further interrogation, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a hard one to find any real, um, extracurricular information about there's not like any great sort of documentaries about it or there's not like Dylan wasn't doing a whole lot of press around this time it was only in the 80s when he actually really started to talk about it and you kind of don't really care what he has to say about it 15 years afterwards I want to know more about him sort of in support of it and trying to justify putting out a record this strange or whatever Um, which is a massive flop Critically, but somehow still sold a million records. And I guess that's just the the artist's name more than anything shifting those units. I don't know if he would ever really reach those heights again in terms of financial success. Um, and maybe this album was the one that sort of killed him. Or maybe like that, teenagers grew up and they didn't want to listen to music that their parents were starting to like. And uh, just, yeah... The 70s came along and people were getting into Sabbath and Zeppelin and harder rocking stuff. There wasn't really space for, you know, a 30-year-old codger like Bob Dylan was when he was putting out this stuff. Or, well, he was actually still in his 20s when this album came out, which is, again, mental. But, um, yeah, self-portrait. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Ultimately then, what, both their elevator pitch for why it flopped. Yeah. And why you think people should ignore the fact that it flopped and yes. embrace it wholeheartedly as you have and I have, kind of. I'm, I'm probably just going to repeat myself, but I think it flopped because it was not the album people expected and quote-unquote needed from the spokesperson of the 60s generation. My elevator pitch for why you should ignore that flop is because people were wrong about loads of things back then. But they thought smoking was healthy. They thought whatever, you could eat as much fondue you wanted and your teeth wouldn't fall out. I think hindsight has probably been kind to this album and if you have any interest in getting into Bob Dylan outside of the big, famous kind of behemoth records, you have to be prepared to listen to some really strange failures and appreciate those failures for what they are, which is attempts at doing something interesting. And yeah, more people should not be afraid of failure and do weird stuff and not be afraid of what Grail Marcus says about you. Because in 50 years' time, he'll just change his mind and <laughs> say it was actually pretty good all along. And uh, yeah, that's my pitch. That's the entire conceit of this podcast, really, isn't it? Yes. Perfect. Brilliant. It has been such a pleasure to have you on and I cannot wait to talk about Timothy's yeah. uh, go as Bob. Where can people listen to Tan and Felix? See them live, yes. potentially. You can listen to us on, um, I'm going to do a smart thing here and direct people towards our band camp where you can also buy our record. 
which is called There's a New Sheriff in Town, coming out on the 20th of October. It'll probably be already out by this point. Yes. Um, so go and do that, please. My children need wine. And on the 23rd of November, for the Dublin listeners, we'll be playing in Whelan's... Uh, and be playing material from the new record and material from the old record. There'll be some live cuts. There'll be a cover of Blue Moon. There'll be Kermit. There'll be Dylan. There'll be a wigwam. You better do wigwam or I'm not coming. We should walk out on stage to wigwam, actually. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, TBD. 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 David Tapley, just what a pleasure <laughs> to have you on Flop Culture. Thank you, Thank you for having so me. much. Yes. Thank you so much. Tana Felix's new album, There's a New Sheriff in Town, is available now wherever you get music. It's brilliant. Go listen to it. Support independent artists, please, for the love of God. Finally, top of the flops. You're a flop. Spoiled for choice this week, to be honest, but I am going to have to go with Tommy Fury spotted partying in Dubai with Chris Brown cursed sentence that's a cursed version of someone needs to create actually nobody steal this idea because I'm going to do it someone needs to come up with a new what is the board game where people get murdered is it Cluedo someone needs to come up with a new version of Cluedo but it's like celebrities and they're doing their motives are that they're doing awful things and Tommy Fury's in this case would be Tommy Fury partying in Dubai with Chris Brown and then they, I don't know, I don't know what the murder, I don't know how the murderers are placed in this game, right? This is a work in progress. I take back what I said about people stealing the idea. If anyone wants to come on board as a collaborator and help me iron out the kinks, I would appreciate that. But anyway, yeah. Girls, not good. Why, why are we in any way associating ourselves in 2023 with Chris Brown? Tell me that and tell me no more. Beyond even all the kind of obvious reasons why you wouldn't that I shouldn't have to get into here maybe the instances of violence repeated violence against women like what kind of clout is Chris Brown holding in 2023 that you're like this is a good look for me this is a cool person I want to be with Tommy come on now and Molly at home and she making the house nice you know she has that house there there is a what do you get, what animal do you get the shirling fabric from? Or do you get it from any animal? Maybe you don't. You know, shirling, she has that house immaculate anyway, is the point I'm trying to make. And it's the fluffiest, whitest, covered in snowflake thing I'd imagine you've ever seen. Get Go home to Molly and Bambi, Tommy, and stay away from Chris Brown for the love of God. Two losers. Um, we're back next week. What are we talking about? That remains a surprise to me and to you. I know we have a few in the back end that I'm deliriously excited about. I just haven't picked which one it's going to be next week. So it's going to be a nice surprise for you. Isn't that going to be fun? Don't say I never give you anything. Shout out to Katrina12345. I'm sure that's your good Christian name who left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and said, Fab Podcast, such a great idea for a podcast series. Love it. Great guests. Wowie, you've tickled all my compliment bones with that, Katrina. Your personalised bopper flap recommendation, I have to say, if you are like me and you resisted the Happy Valley hype for a long time, because for some reason you thought it was like a Doc Martin type shit British comedy TV series, it's not. It is some of the most effective, moving performances by actors that I have ever seen. It's very tense. Season one is 
particularly violent, so I will trigger warn for that. I have like three or two and a half episodes left of season three and I'm savouring them. I don't know how, there was a massive wait between season two and season three and I just, I feel for people who watched at the time. I actually don't know how lucky I am that I'm able to binge it all now. Um, Sarah Lancashire, who plays the lead role of Catherine, brilliant. She was actually just recently honoured at the Rose Door, I think, for her performance in Happy Valley. Get Get the bloody hell on it. If you're based in the UK, I imagine you can get a BBC iPlayer. Just please watch it. It's so, so good. And I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please let me know. I'd love to hear. As mentioned, that is it from us this week. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Flop Culture, edited by the gorgeous Adam Shanahan. I will see you next week, you sexy people. Bye. Bye.